walking out the side door, and gentlemen. Well, we got some good news. I've always always full of good news. I I, uh, do away with the bad. But uh, for the first time in quite some time, uh, for those who have been curious and are wondering, uh, we we were able to go and pick up Miss Linda, and she is here with us, sitting in the back. Good morning, Miss Linda. We have missed you like crazy. Uh, As you guys know, Miss Linda had a little health issues, and she has been out of worship with us in community for uh, almost a month and a half now, maybe a little bit more. And so uh, we were able to get her this morning, and she is set up in a new place to live and is doing great, but she's very excited to be here. Uh, At least I assume. You never know. But I'm hoping, because we're excited she's here. And so, Linda, we are are glad to have you here. We have missed you like crazy. It's good to see you. For those of you that haven't been with us this semester or this kind of past really a half year or so, we have been in the book of Hebrews. And we have started this journey kind of walking line by line, verse by verse, exploring this kind of deep theological book that it really dives into the whys and why nots of Christianity as a whole. And he's making this giant plea to his, he's really, it's really a sermon. We've talked a lot about this. It's more than a letter. But he's making this plea to his hearers, challenging them to not return to an old way of life, but instead to embrace Christ and the new covenant that we have in him and this beautiful life that gives us access to holy God. And he's laid out this incredible theological picture as to why Jesus is better. He's better than the law, better than Moses, uh, better than the angels, better than all these things. And why the new covenant is better than the old and how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And he's spent basically 10 chapters getting us to this place where we understand theologically that Jesus is just the best. That he is completely supreme and totally sufficient. And as he rounds out the end of those first nine and ten chapters, he turns everything to a practical move now. So we've talked theologically about why these things are important. And about six weeks ago, we we moved into the practical. Now, what do we begin to do with this? And for the past five weeks, we've explored this idea of faith. As we've looked at chapter 11, our author has taken us through this sort of journey that says, this is what a life that truly trusts the Lord looks like and why you are called to have one as well. And he uses these heroes, these men and women, these incredible movements of faith. And we look at all of them over the past five weeks. We've talked about Moses and Abraham and Noah and these sort of stalwart movement. We talked about the parting of the Red Sea. We've explored these great moments where people in history have declared that they trust the Lord more than they trust the world. And God has done incredible things. And we're moving out of chapter 11 into a very specific call this morning. But we need to have chapter 11 in the back of our minds because we're going to move away from the encouragement of seeing the faith of other people into the call that it's now your turn. That it's our turn to not just watch the faith of those that have gone before us, but it is our turn to become men and women of true faith that trust and follow Jesus. And the beginning of chapter 12 is a turn that says, now it is up to you. You are being called into this radical, beautiful, faith-filled life, and this is what that looks like. And so those first few verses in chapter 12 are going to be that call. So we're going to keep chapter 11, the Moses, the Noahs, the Abrahams, these incredible people, the Rahabs, all these people in our mind, as our author says, you are just like they are. And you are called to something much more than what you're living. 
So as we prepare our hearts to go before the Lord this morning, look at those verses. Let's just pray together, and then we're going to dive into the first few verses of chapter 12 this morning. Lord, we thank you that your word is this vibrant promise, but it's also a deep and true call. That not only are we looking back, but we're looking forward. Not only are we looking outward, but we're looking inward. Not only is it a reminder, but it's, a, it's an invitation. And so, Lord, this morning, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see a reminder that turns into an invitation. That most of us have spent a lot of our lives watching other people live. And we are called ourselves to engage a life that trusts Jesus. To be fully alive. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that you would begin to teach our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Just invite the Lord to teach you something, to convict you, to, you know, whatever it is that you feel like you might need. Just ask the Lord to speak to you this morning. Just kind of whisper that in your own heart. Lord, open my heart. Lord, teach me. As we do each week, let's take a moment. I want you just to pray for the people around you. Even if you don't know their name, or maybe it's your husband or your wife or your kiddos, or maybe someone that you go to small group with, just pray for them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here really is not about you. We exist for the edification of each other. Pray for the people around you. Pray that God would move in them. Lord, you are the author and perfecter of our faith, which we will see today. Lord, you are all that we need. You are sustainer and giver of life. And so, Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we ask that you would teach us. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and we do not take that lightly. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, and that you would empower us. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're stepping out of chapter 12. We have moved out of five weeks of studying the faith of others into a call that becomes our own. And so you're going to see those linked intricately together. But we're just going to look at the first three verses of chapter 12 this morning. And then next week, um, we're going to finish up uh, and kind of take it one step further. But this morning is going to be a step into this call that is now your life and a life that's called not to watch, but a life that's called to be fully engaged. This is chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, a race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who faced such opposition from sinful men so you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of my favorite sections in all of Scripture, one of my favorite sections in this book, because it is a direct call, but it is a direct link to where we have come from. He actually begins that section with the word, therefore. And when we see the word, therefore, in Scripture, we know that that's a bridge. It's tying us to something that just unfolded. It's why reading Scripture in context is incredibly important. So, therefore, connects us to what happened. And what happened was all of chapter 11. 
For five weeks, we've explored the faith of Abraham. We've explored the faith of Moses. We've explored the faith of Rahab. We've looked at the parting of the Red Sea. We've looked at these incredible monumental events and people in history in which our author was telling us these men and women are heroes of the faith. And it was meant to do a couple of things as we're going to see. But we've been highlighting the faith of those that have gone before us, trying to learn what a life of faith truly looks like. And so author begins by saying, because of all that, in light of all that, therefore, because of all that I've just told you, something is about to happen specifically for you. So he says, in light of all those stories, in light of all those people, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The therefore is pointing back to the great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and he just spent all those, all those verses naming them. Moses, Abraham, Noah, Rahab, Enoch, Isaac, Jacob, all of those people. They are the cloud of witnesses. That word there actually means testifiers. Because we are surrounded by people that are testifying to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Right? So he's saying, in light of that, I want you to see and be two things. I want you to be encouraged and I want you to get motivated is essentially what he's saying. These aren't stories that I told you so that you go, man, Moses was a good dude. They all knew that. These are Hebrew believers. They knew that Moses was the man. It wasn't a reminder that Moses was great. It was meant to do a couple of things. It was meant to motivate and to encourage. A lot of times you'll hear a pastor preach this passage and say that the cloud of witnesses is this great group of saints that is sitting in this spectator seat of the race of life and they are cheering you on. And that is a beautiful thought. But it's really not what's happening here. What's happening here is that cloud of witnesses is actually the ones that he has just mentioned, and they are testifiers. The Greek word there, we get the first part of the English word martyr from. They are the ones that have gone before. They are the testifiers. They're the ones that have shown us what a life of faith looks like. They are the ones that should encourage us. When you see the faith lived out, the people that have gone before you, you recognize that you're not alone. We are encouraged. And for this group of Hebrew Christians, it wasn't that Moses was sitting in the stand saying, you can do it. It was that Moses had walked through difficulty before them and they knew it was possible. That Moses was not something that they couldn't attain to. Moses was an example of who they were called to be. We tend to look at Scripture and think all these people are unattainable. The truth is, if you really look at Scripture, they're just like you and I. They're a ragtag group of kind of fishermen and tax collectors and just people. Remember, they've rejected God long before you did. It took all kinds of coercion for God to finally get Moses on board to go to Pharaoh. Abraham was a pagan for 90 years of his life. These are not perfect people, but they're encouragers. And they're meant to be encouraging to you and I. So when he says, therefore, since you've seen this cloud of witnesses, this cloud of testifiers, be encouraged. I want them to stir your soul, but I also want you to be motivated. Because you are not meant to watch the lives of other people. You are not meant to just read scripture and say, that's great. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders 
and the sin that so easily entangles. So be encouraged, and now it's time to be motivated. It is not enough to just look back and say, way to go, Moses, good job, Noah, Abraham, you're the best, Rahab, rough life, but you're doing all right. You came around, right? Just a prostitute for a while, but you know, she came on the other side there. Good for you. It's not meant to just look back. Because now he says, because of them, you should be encouraged and you should get motivated and you should throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles because you are called to live this life of vibrant faith. And he's going to call it a race. And he said, it's not for Moses. It's not for Abraham. It's not for Noah. It's not for Rahab. It is for you. And it's time for you to begin running. So throw off everything that hinders. Now, if you're a spectator in life, you can wear whatever you want to. But if you are going to run this race, it's a game changer, right? You can't wear the sweats or the backpack or the helmet with the cups and the straws. You can't run the race in that attire because it would hinder you. If you are actually going to participate, you have to get rid of the things that are holding you back. If you are going to be a participant in a race that runs at full faith chasing Jesus, you have to be willing to rid yourself of the things that hinder you have to be willing to do the things that it takes to run. And he puts them in two categories, the things that hinder and the sin that so easily entangles. You know what hinders, right? We've talked about these things ad nauseum. Anxiety, worry, fear, right? Those things hinder. Shame, brokenness, lack of being able to forgive someone in your life. They hinder because they weigh us down. They tell us we can't run. They tell us we can't fully trust Jesus. And actually what we're called to do is throw those things off. I mean, let the metaphor run in your head for a moment. To cast them off. That word throw literally means to take them and toss it into the ocean. So the things that are keeping you from fully trusting Jesus and running a life of faith that we saw in chapter 11 have got to be cast out of your life. Not simply set aside. Not to say, you know what, today, Lord, I'm going to try not to be fearful. I'm going to try not to be anxious. No, they're called to be cast into the ocean. We throw off the things that hinder. You cannot walk a life of faith and live in anxiety. They do not coexist. You cannot fully trust Jesus and worry. It's a divided mind. They hinder he goes on, takes it one step further. He says, remove the things that hinder, right? And the sin that so easily entangles. Part of living a life of faith that trusts and fully runs after Jesus is removing the things in your life that you know are tripping you up. And sin does just that. Sin is the opposite of freedom. Sin is bondage. It's like tying your shoelaces together, trying to run a race. It is bondage. It is steeped in shame and oftentimes darkness. And you know that God is calling you out of whatever that thing, that behavior, that thought, that whatever it is. And yet we keep going back to it. And so our author says, you have got to rid yourself of it because it entangles, it ensnares, it binds. And you cannot run with sin wrapped around your legs or your neck or your heart. But most of us don't want to do the things that it takes to remove the hindrances and the sin we just want to try to run our best with our shoelaces tied together and baggy sweats in a backpack and say, Lord, I'm tired. Yeah, you know why you're tired? Because you won't do the things that God is calling you to do, which is to cast that garbage into the ocean, cut the sin cord off wherever it is, find accountability for it, and say, God, I am all yours. 
Chapter 11 was meant to encourage and motivate, not for you to look back and go, man, Moses was awesome. It's meant to go, I can be Moses. God wants me to live like that with a faith that will send me wherever, at any moment, at any time. No, not shameful, not broken, not anxious, not fear-ridden. Not tied to the sin in my life as if it's some kind of sentence. You can be free from it at any moment in Christ. That's the beauty of the new covenant. The very first thing that we see, it's your turn. It's no longer Moses and Abraham and Noah. It is your turn to live a vibrant, faith-filled, engaging, and exciting life that fully trusts Jesus. So be encouraged and get motivated. Listen to the second part of that. Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for you. The second thing we see there is this, start running the race. This is not a spectator sport following Christ. We do not start running once we figured it all out. Running the race does not begin tomorrow or this afternoon or next week or when you get married or when you have kids or when you finally get your financial life in order. That is not when we begin running. We begin running today. Most of us have been staring at this life thinking, one day I'm going all in. Chapter 12 is the call to go all in right now. That since we have this great encouragement and we are motivated, we are called to start running the race. But we have our own terms, right? We're like, God, I am all in. As soon as I see the course map, I kind of need to know where the turns are, where the big hills are, where all the water stations are laid out, and where that finish line is. I just got to kind of know so I can prep and so I can plan. That's how we think. But here's the beauty of this sentence, right? He says, run with perseverance, which we'll get to in a minute, the race that is marked out for us. You know what that means? It means that the God of the universe already knows the race route. He has actually marked it out for you. He knows every pebble along the road, where the hills are, where the water stations are. He knows where it gets hard. He knows the turns. He knows where it goes out and where it comes back. He knows every moment of it. He has marked it out for you. What that means is that you were invited to run a race that God knows all the angles and turns of, and you don't have to. He's not inviting you to study the course map with him. He's saying, I have marked this race, this life, this vibrant engagement of faith out for you, and I want you to start running today. Get rid of the garbage, get rid of the hindrance, get rid of the sin, and begin to run now, not later. Not at some other time, not at some other place, not when you finally have it figured out, when you've hit enough podcasts or read enough books. Not then, not when, but now. Run today. You don't have to train. You don't have to be ready. You literally just have to trust Jesus and begin to go. That is the glory of the Christian life is that you cannot prep enough. You cannot train enough. You cannot do it on your own. It is impossible. The glory of the Christian race is that God calls you to run and he trains you and sustains you and matures you along the way. That's the beauty of this thing. It's the opposite of a worldly marathon in which you have to spend months training and buying all the right clothes and eating the right foods and doing it all on your own in which you go out there and compete. 
The race of faith is the exact opposite of that. It is the call to the normal, broken, bruised person to step out into a life in which God will provide every breath and every moment and every ounce of energy, and he will train you and mature you, and along the way, you will become a runner. You will fall in love with running that race. You will know the maker of the path. You will know every turn and nuance as you come to them, and you will begin to worry less about what's ahead because you've already gone through the five turns behind you. Start running the race. We can spend our entire lives coming up with excuses about why I won't fully trust Jesus or I can't go all in. And you will waste your life. He says, be encouraged, be motivated, and start running. And how do you start running? What do you run with? You run with perseverance. You know what that means? It means that it's not going to be easy. We're going to see that again in a moment. Perseverance is that part of us that says, I know this is going to be hard. There are going to be days when I want to quit. There's going to be days when it feels like it's uphill both ways. There are going to be days where I feel like I'm the only one on this course. But those are the days that I remember who marked out the race. Those are the days that I remember who called me to run. Those are the days that I look back at Moses and Abraham and Rahab and all these normal people that God has led into incredible places and realize that he will never leave me or forsake me. And I'm going to run. I don't want to run. I actually want to quit. But I'm going to run because I've trained myself to trust Jesus. And he never, ever, ever fails. Right? So we're called to be encouraged We're called to be motivated and we're called to start running the race and we're called to run it with perseverance. But the question really for me is, as I start looking at this, how do I do that? I mean, it's easy to say, man, when it's hard, when life gets complicated, when the race starts to turn the way I don't want it to go, like I want to quit, how do I keep one foot in front of the other? Well, of course, as scripture does in a beautiful way, it answers its own questions. So he says, we run with perseverance, a race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's how you run with perseverance. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So what does it mean to fix your eyes, right? Lots of definitions here, but of course the easy one, the one that stares in the face is this idea of Peter. Remember Peter, the disciples had just fed 5,000 people. They had 12 baskets of bread and fish left over. They were emotionally exhausted, and Jesus sends them ahead. He goes, listen, I am beat. I'm going to pray. You guys go ahead of me on the lake, and I'll meet you on the other side after this incredible day. Puts them in a boat. They go out in the middle of the night, third watch, three in the morning, and Jesus walks out to them on the water. And they freak out. They're terrified. Matthew tells us that they are to the point of being terrified because there is this figure walking out to them on the water and they think it's a ghost and they start screaming. And Jesus tells them, he says, hey, look, it's me. It's Jesus. Don't be afraid. But they're scared anyway. And Peter, the only one that says anything, says, Lord, if it's you, if it's really you, tell me to come out to you on the water. Remember the story. And what does Jesus do? He just says one word, come. So Peter defying all logic and all understanding, steps out of the boat and he begins to walk to Jesus. And then Matthew tells us this, that Peter saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink. So Jesus, Peter locked eyes with Jesus, walking towards him on the water. Everybody's freaking out. 
And it says that Peter saw the wind. How do you see the wind? Well, you begin to look for the wind. You begin to see the waves. The moment he took his eyes off Christ and saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. And he cries out in this loud voice, Lord, I'm drowning. Rescue me. And Jesus reaches out and in one instance grabs his hand, puts him on the boat. And then we have a thousand sermons on why Peter is the worst. Peter's the only one that got out of the boat. All those other fools are still sitting on there. Peter should be commended. The reality is, is that he's much more like what I want to be. All Peter did was take his eyes off Jesus for a moment. And he began to sink. And he just cried out and Jesus saved him. You want to talk about a picture of our lives. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Well, you lock eyes with the one that has been the promise maker and the promise keeper. But when you begin to look at the wind, when you begin to come up with a list of why things won't work, why this can't happen, why all the bad things and negative things will always be, or why I can't actually do this or run this race or finish this thing, when you come up with that list of I can'ts, and you begin to look at the wind and look at the hills and look at how hard this race is and how long it is and how it seems to be no end, when you do all of that, you begin to break down because it begins to be all on your power. You begin to run on your own strength. You begin to run on your own energy and you will always fail. Always. The moment we begin to do any of this on our own, we grow weary, we grow tired. One of the things we're talking about at All Church Retreat is about rest and about spiritual rest. Matthew 11 tells us that the yoke of Christ is actually easy and light. That yoke that goes over the neck of an oxen that carries thousands and thousands of pounds. When it's Christ's yoke, it is easy. When it is our yoke, it is heavy and burdensome. If you're wondering why you are weary and tired, ask yourself what you're looking at. What are you carrying? Are you doing it on your own? Are you filled with more I can'ts and I don't knows and I'm afraids than you are with God can? We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? He gives us two reasons. Because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. We fix our eyes on Jesus, not because he was some great moral traveling rabbi that had a bunch of spiritual answers. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he's the author of faith. He's the author of life. Hebrew tells us that he is creator God. He wrote not just the course map for you, but he breathed life into your lungs. He knows every hair on your head and he knows you intimately. He knows every fear you have before you let him come out of your mouth. He is the author of faith. In other words, you didn't come to faith on your own. God gave it to you. Paul actually tells us that faith is a gift that has been given. In other words, if he wrote faith and he gave it to you, trust him to carry it out. He is the author and what? The perfecter of your faith, meaning you will never perfect your own faith. There's no such thing as running a perfect race. There's no such thing as having a perfect life or having perfect faith or never failing or never falling down. There's no such thing. All you have is Jesus. You are going to run an imperfect race. You are going to trip. You are going to fall. You are going to break an ankle every now and again. You're going to scrape your knees, bust your face, knock a tooth out. That's part of the reason life is hard. But Jesus is the perfecter of faith. That means that where you always fall short, he never does. And that when you are afraid, and that when you are weak, and that when you can no longer run, like Peter, we cry out, Lord, rescue me. And Jesus always saves. 
He's never asked us once to run it on our own or to use our own power. But when we do, he's still there and he's still perfect. And our author tells us that he did that, right? For the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? The cross? That's the joy? Literally, Death by the most torturous means imaginable. Humiliation, of course that's not the joy. He went through all that for the joy that was part of the beyond. They're not only sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, but the rescuing of all of humanity. Jesus ran that race and perfected that faith so that you could run to the Father. It's just biblically true. So we're called to be encouraged and to get motivated and to start running the race and to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Quit trying to do it on your own. Quit dictating the terms and the race route and when and why and how you'll run and just trust the Lord. And then he wraps all this up with this incredible statement. He says, listen. He says... Consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So he said, as if Moses and Noah and Jacob and Isaac and Rahab and all these people weren't enough, consider Jesus, consider him, who faced such opposition from sinful men. You know what that basically means? It means that life is hard. It's hard. Is hard. And of course, that's like the understatement of the century, right? But, but I remember that from when I was a kid because my dad used to tell me that all the time. He'd be like, hey, go move all those rocks from the flower bed over to the other side of the house. I don't even know why. But he said, go do it. And I'd go, I don't want to. He'd go, go do it. So I go out there and I go move the rocks. I start to move the rocks. I go, dad, this is hard. And he'd go, life is hard. And I'd get mad because it's a stupid comment. It doesn't have any make the rocks any lighter. I know he's trying to build my character. I don't really care what character. I got plenty. I don't want to move those rocks. But his point was this, like, why complain about it? Life is hard. Here's the truth. Life is hard. It's beautiful, but it's hard. And trusting Jesus and living as a follower of Christ doesn't make it any easier. It's a hard thing to say, but it's super true. And here's a couple of reasons why. The first is just when you figure out that you get a handle on your life, on your world, on your relationships, on your finances, on your career path, you run headlong into the gospel and Jesus turns everything upside down. So just when you finally think that you've got all this figured out, everything's going your way, you've got this, you've got that, you've saved up all this money, figured out your life, and you open up the gospel and you begin to read that Jesus says things like, the first shall be last. And then we're called to give our resources away because they belong to the Lord. Or to go and trust those that are really hard to trust or to forgive those that have hurt you. Jesus begins to turn the world upside down. And so following Jesus makes life harder because you actually have to let go of the things that you don't want to. Because they're not yours to begin with. And you live in a way that is so countercultural that says it's not about me. It's not about what I want, what I get, what I should have. It's not about the material things that I can store up for myself. Life is hard when you follow Jesus because he calls us out of safety and out of comfort into the wild unknown. But it's also hard because there's opposition. 
Number one, from the enemy. The enemy will not let this happen easily. He will not let you just go all in easily. And the more you run that race and follow Jesus, the more active he becomes in your life to render you ineffective for the gospel of sharing it with other people. But not only that, we see actually a very direct statement here, which is consider him who faced opposition from sinful men, meaning you will also have a hard time with people. There will be people in your life that are really hard. And the most difficult of those to swallow will be the ones that are closest to you. They're going to hate you for a lot of reasons. They're going to hate you because a lot of times your life just exposes sin in theirs. Or as Mark 13, 13 says, where Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me. Sometimes they're just going to not like you because you say you love Jesus. But there will be people in your life that gossip, that speak ill about you, that slander you. Sometimes those people actually come from within the walls of the church. There are going to be things in your life, whether it be life's obstacles or people, they're going to make you want to stop running. That's where our actual Hebrew Christians were, remember? The culture around them was telling them to return to Judaism. Quit following Jesus. He's not worth it. Return to your families. Return to your culture. The old covenant way of life is better. The entire book of Hebrews up to chapter 11 is actually refuting that claim. The old covenant is not better. Jesus is better than the, than the, than the, the law, better than the angels, better than Moses, better than all these things. He's the greatest high priest. The whole book is geared towards the don't listen to the lies of the world. And you know those lies weren't coming from kings. They were coming from mom and dad and people they cared about saying, turn away from Jesus and just come back. The opposition they were facing was from within the circle. Life is hard. The race is hard. You're going to run into obstacles. There's going to be rocks in the path. There's going to be turns you didn't want to take. There are going to be days you run in the snow. There's going to be opposition from the enemy that's going to try and destroy you. There's going to be opposition from within and without. You're going to have coworkers that are going to be hard. You're going to love somebody so well, and they are going to be so awful to you. You are going to care about someone so deeply, and they are going to stab you in the back, and it is going to hurt. You're going to read something online that somebody wrote about you that is going to steal part of your soul. It's going to hurt so bad. That opposition is real. Following Christ does not make any of that go away. But you know what it does? It puts it in its right place. Because it's happened to every single person that followed Jesus before you. The world has turned on them. And it's actually called to be an encouragement. That's why martyring was so incredibly encouraging the community of faith because those that have gone before you were willing to walk the ultimate line to follow Jesus. Therefore, you are not alone. Now, not one of us in this room will face martyrdom for our faith in Christ most likely. But the fact that somebody did makes me want to wake up and just go all in for Jesus. Remember last week we talked about this? People were dying and struggling. Some people were sawed in half. And I told you last week, like, you want to talk about how it can always get worse than whatever you're dealing with right now? You could be sawed in half. That would suck. Because I'm guessing you're fully aware of what's going on. But somebody has done that for Jesus. And I won't even let myself be inconvenienced for Christianity. 
That's sad. But that's why this passage is so incredible, is because it's a call to not watch the faith of others, but to have your own adventurous, vibrant, faith-filled life with Christ, where you are encouraged and motivated, where you are starting to run today, not tomorrow, not nine podcasts later, not when you figure out your financial life, not when you get married or have kids, but literally, Jesus, I'm all in today, and I'm locking my eyes, I'm fixing my eyes on Christ, I'm not watching the wind, I'm not watching the waves, I don't care about the voices, I don't care what anybody else says, I want to go all in with Jesus. And when I face opposition, when I face opposition, I'm going to consider Jesus. Why? So that I don't grow weary and lose heart. We consider Jesus so that we can actually be swelled up with strength. Because the opposition just wants you to quit running. This entire world will want you to just stop, to grow tired and lose heart. And so when that begins to happen, all we've got to do is just stop and think about Jesus. He did all that for me. He walked that road to Golgotha. He died this humiliating death. He was spit on by the very creation that he made, by the very people that he was coming to rescue that would cry out for the life of a murderer. He did that for me so that I could know him, an abundant, real, faith-filled life and the promise of eternal life to come. He did that. I'm going to consider that, and I'm not going to lose heart, and I'm not going to grow weary. I'm not going to let the voices of those outside distract my goal, which is to trust and follow and live for Jesus. I'm not going to let the fear of my financial world or my anxieties or my shame or the steepest sin that I've got, I'm not going to let those things run my life because I'm going to consider him so that I don't grow weary and lose heart. It doesn't say, when you start to get tired, run harder. Right? It doesn't say, train more. It doesn't say, make sure you eat all your carbs. It just says, just think about it, consider Jesus. Because you can't do anything except trust him. These three, chapters, these three verses are an invitation to a true and real life. And I venture to say that most of us, myself included, have yet to even put a foot anywhere near the path that God is calling us to. Like incredible things. But that all begins today. Not later, not tomorrow. Right? Encouraged, motivated, running, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And not growing weary. Not losing heart. One of the great reminders of this is that table, the table that we celebrate with communion every single week or every single month. We celebrate communion as a reminder of this incredible call that we have. Because when we take this meal and we share it together, we are considering Christ. This is the picture. Jesus actually gave this gift to all believers that some 2,000 years ago, or years ago, we have been given this and we are celebrating it today, not as a habitual part of our worship that says, oh, it's the second Sunday of the month, we do a communion. No, as a way of saying, this is what Jesus did for me. And he actually invites me into a vibrant life of faith. And the truth is, I'm, I just don't, sure I'm ready to trust him. This table is a reminder of that great call of trust. And the people that went before us that have taken it, those that have given their life for Christ, those that 
in our families that we love, our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, those that have gone before us that are in the line of walking like people like Moses. They're encouragers. They motivate us. But more than anything, what this table does is it reminds us that I can't do it on my own. And Jesus knew that. And so he died so that I could have a real, true, abundant life today, a vibrant, exciting, energetic life of full faith today, and the promise of life to come. Those two incredible, beautiful things make up the Christian life. Today, as we celebrate communion, I want it to be that reminder for us. I want it to be this incredible picture that we are called to. And I want it to be a motivator to say, Jesus, you did this for me. I'm going to trust you. Over my anxiety, over my fear, over my worry, all, all those things. I just, I just trust you. I choose to trust you. I don't know how to begin to run, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to take all these thoughts. I'm going to bury them. I'm going to cast them into the sea. I'm going to throw them off like the hindrances they are. I'm going to untie the sin from my life, and I'm going to run the race. As hard as it gets, this is what you've given me. And the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. After he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. Here at the vine, we take communion by means of intinction, which means that you just come forward, you take a piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, and you eat it. It's a celebration and a reminder. It's an encouragement and a call. But as Paul says, it's never to be taken lightly. We always are called to examine our hearts, confess our sin, acknowledge our place before the Lord, and take this as a great and powerful and mysterious reminder of God's incredible grace and his goodness. It is open to all who profess faith in Christ, and not just from a specific domination or to church, but to all believers and therefore, all who trust in Christ are welcome at this table. Uh, I encourage you that as we take our communion, as you remain standing, Don will close us out in worship this morning. But as you feel led or called, you can come down and share in this meal. We'll have a station in the back and a station down front. But let's pray together as our servers come forward this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified and exalted. Lord, we pray that you would take this meal, this bread, and this cup, and that you would remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness. That, God, you would transform these elements into just this beautiful reminder and nourishment of our soul. That we could be reminded of who you are and the great call that you have for us. And, Lord, as we celebrate this table and this communion together, I pray, God, that you would be exalted and lift it up. And we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. And for those of you that need it, we have gluten-free Jesus bread up here. So.